Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show. And in the virtual studio today is my trustworthy colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder here at Pop Health Week. Good, good afternoon, Fred. Good afternoon, Greg. It's a beautiful day here in Florida, and we're recuperating from the storm, so it's getting nice. Oh, well, we're happy to hear that, and we hope our friends down in Puerto Rico get some badly needed relief as well. Uh, before we get started, uh, before we get started, Fred, tell us a little bit about the Pop Health 5 series that just launched today. Sure. So thanks, Greg. So i I, I kind of been looking at this idea of a, a short, quick little five-minute show about news going on in population health, recent hires, maybe a study or two that's come out, uh, some interesting things being done in the community, and possibly some commentary on the uh, political situation we're facing here, and uh, maybe some solutions to that. So that's really the uh, the genesis of it. And as, as uh, you saw, I launched the first one. It's uh, a little bit rough around the edges, but we'll keep working on it and see if we can make it better. Well, that's good stuff, and we look forward to it. Now, for those of you not familiar with Fred He's a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida based consulting firm. Fred serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Population Health Management and the Best Practices Review Panel for the Institute for Medicaid Innovations. He is a past chair and former board member of the Population Health Alliance. Fred is known on Twitter as at FS Goldstein. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author ACOWatch.com, healthinnovationmedia.com, and precisionmedicine.center. And now for today's very special guest, and I'm happy to say a colleague of mine, Nick Vanderhaden, MD, also known as Dr. Nick. Dr. Nick Vanderhaden brings a distinctive blend of medical practitioner and business strategist, both national and international, to the realm of healthcare technology. A graduate of the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine, University of London, Dr. Vanderhaden is a pioneering creator in the evolution of healthcare technology. After several years as a medical practitioner in London and Australia, he joined an international who's who in healthcare, academia, and business in the development of the first electronic medical record in the early 90s, and later as a business leader in one of the first speech recognition companies. His rare combination of patience, creativity, skill, and intrinsic business ethics has led him to a diverse career in healthcare with some of the most prestigious hospitals, consulting firms, and technology companies. 
As founder and CEO of Incremental Healthcare, he seeks out incremental changes from other industries that can be leveraged to improve quality, reduce cost, and increase access to healthcare. Dr. Nick frequently writes and speaks on the futuristic trends in healthcare technology. His ability to communicate in understandable terms makes him a sought-out expert. And with that introduction, Fred, over to you. Help us get to know Dr. Nick and what's on his radar these days. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Greg. And Dr. Nick, it's just a pleasure to have you on Pop Health Week. Thanks for having me, Fred. Uh, and Greg, it's a delight to be here. Yeah, we met, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, started bumping into people at conferences. And I've always been impressed by the breadth and depth of your knowledge, whether it's in healthcare, technology, we've talked a little bit of astronomy and the eclipse. I noticed you've done some work in scotch, at single vault in particular. But you're focusing now, and you talk about an interesting area. Everyone's talking moonshot, moonshot. We're going to do these big radical transformations. Yet you talk about incrementalism and incremental change. Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I, I'm still a believer in the moonshot, and I still believe in those sort of radical changes. But I think what people fail to understand for the most part is that many of the moonshots or these revolutions that we perceive and I'll, I'll pick one that's you know been frequently in the media in the last uh, uh, several months uh, uber um, that you know people look at and think wow what an amazing idea who was the 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 uh, individual or individuals that came up with this fantastically brilliant concept that uh, you know, aside from some of their challenges, you know, for the most part, we love and is really sort of sweeping, um, I think, you know, throughout the generations. Well, if you go back and look at the history for that organization, it was actually a series of small course corrections and uh, adaptations to both uh, changing uh, technology um, and learning experiences from feedback from customers and how they got to this um, uh, great company and solution was really uh, what I would call a series of incremental changes and I think that's our way to those moonshots um, and one of the things about that is that it's so much more satisfying for individuals. If you're looking for that revolution, it would be great to find it. I mean, quite frankly, we'd all like to find it. But if you're hunting for that and uh, relatively unsuccessfully, that tends to be a little bit demotivating. Whereas if you can find small steps of improvements and demonstrate that improvement, I think you give that positive feedback and the constant uh, ascension towards this better environment. You know, in our case, obviously, we focus on healthcare, but that's true in any, any other industry. So I really look at this and say, you know, I, I don't think you should let perfection stand in the way of progress. This is a real opportunity to uh, find those small changes that can lower cost, uh, lower risk, um, and bring essentially improvements to our healthcare environment that we all know we need um, but are struggling to get to. You talked about some of this, uh, and maybe we can take a look at how you would look at a specific area of this in terms of pharmacy costs and drug costs in a recent blog post. Um, how did you look at that and say incrementally, here are some things we need to do, and perhaps discuss a little bit about your blog post? 
Yeah, sure. So um, th that particular blog post was uh, triggered, as, as many of mine are, with you know some personal interactions uh, or, or experiences. And I, I wish I could attribute uh, the, the, the initial uh, discussion uh, to the individual, but quite honestly, I can't remember. Um, you know, I have the privilege of sort of navigating through lots of experiences and interactions with people, and I always try and attribute uh, insights to those individuals. But, you know, where I fail to, please forgive me. But in this particular instance, it was somebody talking about um, creams and the distribution of creams, uh, small um, uh, tubes of cream uh, that are given out in other countries. And in this uh, case, it was in India. And the point that they made, and in fact, they actually had an example they pulled out and said that, you know, they were actually traveling, they were in India, and had to go and see a physician. And uh, the physician prescribed, they went to the uh, pharmacy, and the pharmacist handed them uh, a tube of cream that I can only describe as minute, um, you know, relative to these gargantuan tubes that we receive here in the United <laughs> States. It was this tiny tube, and you know, she, uh, in this particular instance, um, was, was uh, you know, a little bit concerned. Gosh, is is this really the right medication? You know, it was so different to her personal uh, experiences elsewhere. Uh, and you know, on a little bit of discovery and uh, discussion, it turns out, yes, exactly the right medication. But importantly. Uh, you know, just about the right amount. So probably a little bit extra than uh, was necessary, uh, but certainly a lot less than the tube that sits in everybody's drawer. And that to me seemed like this just extraordinarily simple idea that would reduce the cost. And my pr point here in the blog post was, you know, this is a simple idea. Why are we issuing 60, 30 gram tubes of cream, many of which go off, rather than smaller uh, doses that are more appropriate. And it doesn't just apply to cream. Now, the essential point from my perspective, and you know, like both you and, and Greg, I think I feel passionately um, you know, for the benefit of the patient. What I didn't want to see if people were going to start doing this was something that I'd seen in fact, with toilet rolls, um, where the uh, toilet roll manufacturers had actually narrowed the width of toilet roll, um, but they were pricing it maybe slightly less, but essentially they were giving less toilet roll to the customer. Um, uh, from a saving perspective, they were accruing all the savings. So in this particular instance, I really wanted to say, you know, provide smaller doses but make sure that you share in those savings, recognizing that there's a little bit more of additional packaging cost. That to me, simple change, and I offered up some other examples, what else could we do uh, along the same lines that might offer an opportunity to reduce the astoundingly high cost uh, of medications in this uh, country, particularly relative to uh, other countries. Right, and I also appreciate the fact, as I recall, that you did point out that individuals with chronic diseases, you know, who have to take medications often for the rest of their life, it's probably more important to not increase their fill rates as a, as a means to try to do some of this stuff, because obviously adherence is such a critical issue. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, it's, it's it, again, important customization. This is not, um, you know, one solution fits all instances. Um, and, you know, the, the driver in this, as it should be always, is what's going to benefit the patient the most um, and give them the most cost-effective uh, treatment uh, and support for their condition. Um, and if that turns out that it should be larger quantities and easier access, then obviously facilitate that. But for the vast majority, you know, I know I have a drawer full of uh, unused and, and wasted uh, pharmacy uh, content. I'm sure many other people do. And in fact, we, we know that's a big problem because we see it in the effluent. Um, and it's one of the ways that we can track actual drug usages by measuring the um, uh, effluence in uh, cities to see where drugs are being taken and track that information. Quite an extraordinary science project, that on its own. Yeah, I mean, actually, when I read that piece of it, I thought, wow, how fascinating. We can actually begin to measure that and then pick up drug usage rates in the community that perhaps we weren't able to identify if we were to put some monitoring systems like that around a population health-based program. So, right. very interesting. Simple, simple approach, but, uh, you know, if you don't think about it, you go, well, who would have thought? But, you know, I, I, the ideas that I always like, particularly around this sort of incremental approach, are the ones that people go, well, that's obvious. <laughs> um, but when in reality, you look back and go, well, yeah, it may have been obvious, but nobody's actually doing it, right? Nobody did it, right, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Are there areas you've been around, you've, I mean, you see so much stuff, you've worked all over the industry, been highly involved in technology and IT, et cetera. What, what do you see out there that excites you? So uh, I, I think one of the... Um, so there are so many. I think one of the challenges in a short period of time is to sort of cover all of those potential areas. And, you know, we could list off all of the sort of technologies around nanotechnology, the genomics, the proteomics, robotics, artificial intelligence. You know, there's this big long list. How do you pick from that? So I'm going to pick a couple of things. Um, I think the underlying um, new innovation or new insights that we're deriving around genomics, and I, I would sort of expand that to proteomics because we're sequencing the proteome, um, is really sort of the fundamental change in medicine. Um, I, I, I've said this before, but when I went to medical school 30 plus years ago, um, we were still sequencing the gene when we did um, we essentially uh, suggested that 95% of it was junk. Um, in, in hindsight, that seems really quite preposterous, uh, you know, in, in uh, how we could have accepted that. But that was our sort of concept because we couldn't understand what it did. Now, of course, we're starting to explode and expand that because we're accessing that information. So that to me is the underpinning of everything that's going on. There are lots of other things that I think contribute to it, but that um, essentially gives us the source data to start to really revolutionize the way that we approach medicine. Simple example of that, I think cancers will increasingly be classified based on genomics and individualized or um, uh, precision style medicine as opposed to the current methodology, which is typically by organ or by location in the body, which doesn't make sense as we start to understand this better. Um, so one person's uh, bone cancer is not the same as somebody else's bone cancer. 
Um, but then building on that is all the data that this generates. And, and to be clear, I've, I've still not found a really good analogy or way of explaining how enormous this amount of data is that we're going to generate or are already generating uh, from all of this genomics. So I think that foundation and then the opportunity to start to mine this. And, and the one thing I would say around this is, in many instances, an awful lot of this data exists. We just haven't gotten to the insights um, to be able to understand the contribution or uh, the value that that brings in terms of improving people's health care. Um, and, you know, I'll pick one specific example from uh, a, a recent uh, uh, innovation and uh, interaction that I've got around something we call the invisible patient. So the invisible patient is somebody that appears healthy on paper, but at some point we know hits this trigger point or tipping point um, and essentially descend into this spiral of poor health. And we know those patients, and typically if that patient walked in through a physician's door, the physician knows almost instantaneously. It's, all, it's even a visual thing, but they never touch the healthcare system. And we struggle with that because they're essentially uh, the risk that sits in all of these pools. Um, and they're challenged because they don't know. So give you an example, the patient that sort of slowly declined um, and uh, you, you know, used to be able to go for a walk, but over a period of two years, let's say, has increasingly found it a struggle, now can no longer ascend a hill, isn't able to get up the stairs without stopping. But if you uh, expand that across a timeline, that just seems like your norm. Whereas uh, from the outside, as I tell that story and I compress the time frame, you go, well, of course that's a problem, but they don't know it, they don't understand. So identifying those individuals with data, which we can do and we have that data, and then offering interventions that can bring about uh, either a mitigation, so reducing the impact of this trajectory that they have, or potentially preventing it. So it could be mm -hmm. one or two simple things that you could bring to that individual. You've now satisfied the patient, satisfied the physician, and you know, almost as a side benefit, but I know it's really the primary one in many instances, you've satisfied the uh, economics here because you've saved money because if you head things off at the pass you know it's going to cost you a whole lot less to deal with that particular individual that for me is absolutely the exciting opportunity in all this data um, that we can mine deliver value and start to deliver the value proactively to the patients as opposed to sitting in our offices and going okay who's coming through the door now got it and so what sort of data elements you talk about that case? Are you talking about bringing together? Are you, are you talking about the, the social determinants data and the genomics data and their medical data and claims and all of that? Is that sort of the mashup? It, it's, so it's really everything. So, uh, okay. you, you know, there's some standard there's some standard elements to uh, that data that um, you know, we're all familiar with. For example, uh, the claims data, everybody's familiar with that, but that's a retrospect retrospective data set. 
But if we can add in the social determinants, if we can add in social data, for example, with approval, so I'm not sort of talking about this creepy sense of just listening in, um, but, you know, proactively, and, you know, most people are willing to share their data. For goodness sake, they share everything with Google to uh, have their Gmail. Um, but they get value for that. And if you did that in healthcare and said, hey, I'm going to offer you some insights and I'm going to offer you some uh, support to help you stay healthy and uh, provide you with a, a trajectory that uh, keeps you out of hospital, um, I think people are willing to share. So you add all of that in and then combine it. Just mm -hmm. one comment on the genomics, because I, I love that space, and obviously I talked about that as a foundation. And I think we already have. So even based on the, the knowledge today, uh, as best as I understand it, if we sequenced you at birth, we could give you advice that would essentially extend your life by eight years um, and improve the quality of your life uh, by eight years. So that's pretty good, and I think that's improving over time. The challenge we have is that that sequencing data and that whole process is just not tied into our system. We really don't have the capacity to sort of incorporate it. And, you know, I personally have experienced that. So I went through sequencing, and my sequencing was done digitally. They produced a, a file, which they then printed. They mailed it to my uh, family practitioner. He scanned it into his electronic medical record. When I showed up to ask and consult with him, he hit the print button and printed out the scanned copy of the printed uh, digital right. copy. I, you know, it's broken. We've got to find some interoperability and, you know, the capacity to use it. So I think the genetic data is not quite there in terms of being able to incorporate it. But where we have it, I think we can get the value. Got it. And let me ask you something about that. So everyone's talking about getting this genetic data. And like you said, you're going to understand individually that that, that person's cancer is different from that person's cancer. And you have all these pharma companies that are out there trying to develop targeted pharma, pharmaceutical products or biologicals. I'm really interested in CRISPR. Is it possible that CRISPR just kind of derails the need for many of those interventions that are pharmaceutically based? I, I, I love that you asked that question because one of the other notes that I had as I was thinking about the things to talk about was CRISPR. And I didn't mention it because it, it's, it just adds this additional level of complexity in the time issue. But I right. agree with you 100%. I think, uh, it, you know, it, 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 talk about heading things off at the pass. If you can actually uh, preclude or prevent the disease from occurring, and we've seen a little bit of that uh, with some – uh, concepts around editing of genes and you know let's take a simple example um, you know of a catastrophic disease let's take cystic fibrosis and there aren't any specific um, uh, or, or individual genes so you can't say well uh, uh, there are some so if you have uh, certain genetic markers um, you, you know you're you're going to develop cystic fibrosis but it's not a one-to-one -one. but let's suppose Correct. there was if you could edit that out, why would you right. not do that? And I, and I know I'm, you know, treading all over ethical <laughs> considerations and I'm simplifying the issue, but come on, let's be honest here. If you're the parent of, uh, of or the potential parent of a baby that's going to be born and they could be born with cystic fibrosis, but we could edit that gene before they're born, remove it and remove that disease, 
I'm struggling to find a reason as to why we would not do that if we were able to. So I think that trajectory is very clear. And the idea of medicine being a treatment versus prevention is going to be flipped completely. And we're starting down that track based on data. And that data is going to expand and expand our knowledge. Now, all of these are very complex problems. So it's typically not a one-to-one. It's, you know, multifactorial. Mm -hmm. So understanding the impacts and obviously the unintended consequence, you know, so suppose it's five genes and you cut out one, what's the then consequence of that? Well, you know, so, so there's lots of complexity here, but certainly in the simplistic cases, it seems like that's a, a clear opportunity for the future and a very exciting one. I, I know I want to be a part of that, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, taking some of this stuff that's coming, that's happening now, you mentioned the difficulty with the genetic data and how you're giving this PDF doc, in essence, print it off, here you go. Um, do you see this really having an impact on uh, ACOs, value-based care, this whole movement into population health, or is the system going to keep that sort of plugged up and not very effective? Well, so we all know that change is difficult and, you know, the incumbents uh, resist it. We've seen that repeatedly, um, you know, in lots of industries. Uh, you know, I've got a number of blockbuster ex-blockbusters in, in my area of uh, a company that believed that, you know, streaming digital was not going to uh, disrupt their, uh, their world. I would suggest the same for healthcare. I think they do so at their peril. Um, the idea that this, um, uh, what, what I call the silver tsunami, the um, uh, exploding group that is now moving into healthcare, who have essentially caused much of the change and improvements in uh, education, in housing, all of those things by this bulge, you know, that, that occurred, the baby boomers, they're all showing up at healthcare going, wait, what? It's, I'm sorry, <laughs> what, 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 I have to check all of my expectations at the door when I walk into there. They're not going to stand for that. And I think that's going to absolutely force that mass of individuals are absolutely not going to stand for the current setup and configuration and will demand and force change appropriately so that we, we stop delivering illness care and start to deliver wellness and be proactive and do the things that we're doing in all these other industries that absolutely make sense. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's an example of that this week, apparently, in the discussion between Judy Faulkner and uh, former Vice President Joe Biden about him wanting access to all of his records. And she said, we can give you 20 pages. And he said, no, I want it all. And you don't have any right to know why I would want it all, which I think is uh, that voice starting to get heard out there. So as you as you look down the road, where do you think you're going to take some of your work and efforts and, and try to make a difference? So I, I'm really, uh, you know, I like to focus on something that I can bring the value um, my, my particular approach, you know, the incremental healthcare is what I believe is the lower risk uh, approach, uh, applying small changes, lower cost um, uh, that you can course correct quickly um, that has less risk associated with any loss uh, associated with those changes. So for me, incrementalism is decreased risk or risk aversion. So I'm constantly looking to evolve, uh, adapt, uh, adopt and amend as part of that process. I see this 
um, huge wealth of data that we can drill into and derive the value that I think is really going to uh, deliver opportunity. Um, and some of that is associated with execution, to be clear. So um, you can have great ideas, but it's got to be executed by a team that's able to deliver against that. Ultimately, I think it's evolution, not revolution. Um, and uh, I think the, there is a wealth of opportunities that we're going to see and expand upon in the healthcare space. Well, that's fantastic. I think, you know, as you, it's an exciting time. You obviously cover a broad range of areas and issues and but i do uh, agree with you that idea of an incre incremental changes we sometimes forget that and that really is you get to the end by getting the first you know taking that first step and then the second step and the third so applying that i think to some of these huge problems would make it much more effective as we try to fix either the data issues we face or the population health issues we face or the uh, consumer issues we face so I, I really appreciate um, your insights. And I think, uh, Nick, I'd love to get you back on and talk some more about this uh, on another show. Absolutely. So uh, for me, it's proton health. Think like a proton, always positive. Um, <laughs> it, takes, it, it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. So uh, don't, don't sort of focus on those extended moments. We, we've got an opportunity right in front of us always. Well, thank you again for joining us. Pleasure to have you on Pop Health Week. Thank you very much. Great to be here. And there you have it. That will have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, Nick Vanterhaden, MD, Dr. Nick, for his time and insights today. Do follow Dr. Nick's work on the web at www.incrementalhealthcare.com and on Twitter via at Dr. D-R-N-I-C, the number one. And finally, if your hospital, health system, physician venture, or healthcare conference is in the market for social media support, including content development, curation, engagement, or amplification, ping me on Twitter via at 2HealthGuru or email Greg with two Gs at healthinnovationmedia.com. Fred and I will be happy to lend our subject matter expertise to your efforts. Until we meet again on Pop Health Week, for Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying, Puerto Rico, we hear you. Stay strong. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.